You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Ruth Flegman. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, September 6th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Dr. Ziva Cooper, the director of the UCLA Center for Cannabis and Cannabinoids, in the second and final installment of an interview series on the WFHB Local News. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half an hour, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of Kite Line, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. But first, your local headlines. On August 31st at the Monroe County Commissioners' Meeting, Health Department Administrative Assistant Kendra Mood reported that IU Health is hosting a monkeypox vaccination clinic on Miller Drive for those who are known close contacts, those who are immunocompromised, or those living with HIV. She said that the clinic will be open from 4.30pm to 7pm on Tuesdays. For more information or to schedule an appointment, Mood said to call 812-353-3219. Next, the commissioners read a statement to acknowledge Recovery Month. Recovery Month is a national observance held every September to educate Americans that treatment and services can enable those with mental health and substance use disorders to live healthy and rewarding lives. Now, in its 33rd year, Recovery Month celebrates the gains made by those living in recovery. Employment can play a key role in in recovery and supported employment services offer new gateways to empowerment and recovery for people across the United States. Medication-assisted treatment is effective and can be integrated into both treatment and recovery support settings to help people in their recovery. MAT services can be integrated into clinical settings, the criminal justice system, recovery housing, and peer recovery support systems. Whereas Monroe County takes great pride in being a member of the STRIDE Coalition, providing the space for the STRIDE Center, an alternative to incarceration for those in crisis. Recovery Month celebrates the gains made by those in recovery, just as we celebrate improvements made by those who are managing other health conditions, such as hypertension, diabetes, asthma, and heart disease. Recovery is different for each person. For some, it is abstinence. For some, it is harm reduction. And for others, it is living through each day. We seek to end the stigma attached to mental health challenges and substance use disorders with the goal of making it easier for people to come forward when they are ready. We firmly believe that recovery is possible for everyone, every person, every family, and every community. Now, therefore, we, the Monroe County Board of Commissioners, proclaim September 2022 as Recovery Month in Monroe County, proclaimed this 31st day of August 2022. And I would like to add, if I could, that um, today is Overdose Awareness Day. 
all across the nation. And in the 12 months that ended April, in April of 2021, there had been over 100,000 drug overdose deaths. And in 2018 in Monroe County, um, we had 26 overdose deaths. By 2021, that number had risen to 54, which is more than double what it had been just three years before. And what we're seeing on the street is um, a really, is a, a mixture of a synthetic opioid, primarily fentanyl, with um, a psychostimulant that is um, methamphetamine. And it's very, very powerful. It's causing a lot of problems for many individuals. So thank you so much. Then, Highway Department Director Lisa Ridge asked the commissioners to approve various agreements for the Fullerton Pike Phase 3 project. Good morning. Um, this is for right-of-way acquisition for our Fullerton Pike Phase 3 project. Um, this agreement includes the replacement of an existing water well, uh, water quality testing and remediation if necessary, tree removal and a repair of the mailbox. Um, the existing well and the tree are within the construction limits of the project, and the total acquisition, again, is $70,663.75. Ridge said that they had 18 parcels to acquire, and the parcels outlined on this meeting's agenda are the last ones to approve before the project can begin. Commissioner Julie Thomas asked Ridge to plant new trees on the property, if possible, to replace the trees they will be cutting down. I, I would, uh, deal, you know, this all makes sense. Uh, you know, the well, I'm not sure about, but that's that's the property owner's decision. But uh, it would be really great to replace the tree with a couple of new ones if we can. Okay. Um, so if that can be done, please do it. Um, I would appreciate it, and I'm sure they would as well. The commissioners unanimously voted to approve the agreement. The next Monroe County Commissioners meeting will be held on September 7th. At the Bloomington Utilities Service Board meeting on August 29th, Capital Projects Manager Dana Hudson asked the board to accept a bid from Feynman Construction for the Wastewater Treatment Plant Bar Screen Replacement Project. For the record, I'm Dan Hudson, the Capital Projects Manager for the City of Bloomington Utilities, and I'd like to request the board, uh, ask the board to accept the bid for Thieneman Construction to do the construction work um, of the bar screen at the Monroe Water Treatment Plant for $1,554,000. The board unanimously approved the bid. Hudson also asked the board to approve a bid with Greeley and Hansen. We've asked Greeley and Hansen to uh, do a design uh, bid, a construction uh, administration and an inspection service for the replacement of the bar screens at the Dillman wastewater treatment plant. That also includes two uh, electrical feeder lines uh, that need to be replaced at the plant uh, for 317200 Any questions? The board also unanimously approved this bid. Next, utilities engineer Phil Pedden asked the board to approve a rejection of bids. Pedden explained that the bids had all exceeded their budget for the Fritz Terrace North Edition project and said they will have to edit the bid before sending it out again. Phil P. and engineering department, uh, at the last board meeting, we opened up bids for the North Fritz Terrace 
sanitary sewer rehabilitation project, and those came in about 50% over our estimate, and that was all due to one light item within the bids that we had actually met with the engineer and discussed taking out and making an alternate, uh, but, but since we hadn't uh, and it was in the bid, we have to reject all the bids. What we'll do moving forward is remove that, make it an alternate so we can still see the price and incorporate it in there, but uh, we have the option to choose it or not choose it when we uh, move forward with the contract. So uh, to, to get to the next step, we have to reject all these bids and, and rebid the project. Board member Gene Kapler asked if the omission is an important item they will need later. Pettin replied, saying it is something they would like to do in the future. However, they don't have the funds to complete it at this time. It's not necessary to the, the whole project. You know, uh -huh. we still get to do the rehabilitation to the public main, uh, and it was just a lateral lining component that, that exceeded mm -hmm. the estimate. So we don't necessarily, we're not going to go forward with doing the lateral lines? Part? I guess it'll be in the alternate bid, so we could choose to, uh, but it was just exceeded what we have in funding. So, uh, okay. so at okay. this point, uh, I think I think the goal of the utility would probably be to do that at a point where we can budget for that, because we do want to see what that uh, innovative uh, idea can do to the, uh, eliminating I and I. But at this time, since it wasn't in the budget, we'll have to wait for the next time we do a lining project to incorporate mm. that in a 2023-2024 lining. The board approved the rejection of the bids to allow the utilities department to rebid for the project. Next, utilities director Vic Kelson presented an agreement with Meridium's contractor, Atlantic Engineering Group. Kelson explained that they are working on a city project and would like to use the land next to the Blucher Pool wastewater treatment plant. Good evening. Uh, we've got um, we've been uh, working with AEG, Atlantic Engineering Group. They are a subcontractor for Meridium, uh, which is the company that will be implementing the citywide fiber project that uh, was recently entered. The contract was recently entered into. Um, AEG needs space. They need about an acre of space for a yard for laying down materials that they're using on the project and for their trucks. Uh, and they need some office space. And they asked around, uh, ITS asked around uh, to find out if there were any city facilities that might be suitable. And uh, it turns out that the, uh, the, the, the Blucher Pool facility met the met the objectives pretty well uh, and we suggested to them that they might look at that they came out and looked at it and said it would be perfect for what they're trying to do so what we're talking about doing here is leasing them access to part of the large asphalt pad that sits there vacant right now it hasn't been used in years uh, it used to be an area where we composted sludge but we don't do that there anymore so the um, the idea is that they would use that for their laydown yard, and we have a vacant office space that they could locate their um, their office equipment in. Um, so the uh, after talking it a bit over with the controller, um, this is a city project. Uh, really, isn't uh, any way to get really good comps on on leasing space. Uh, so we uh, we proposed five hundred dollars a month. Uh, for the for the lease of the property, and then an additional two hundred dollars a month uh, for access to our fiber internet connection there at the plant. 
totaling $700 a month. Basically, this is uh, a very low impact on our staff. It's just making sure the gate's closed, um, but it would give them the, uh, the advantage of being in a secure location uh, with controlled access and 24-hour uh, coverage. So it, it turns out to be a great op uh, location for the, for the contractor for doing this work. And it is a city project. It's in support of a city project. It will not disrupt the operation of the plant. Board member Amanda Burnham questioned the agreement, saying the price for renting the land and the office space is so low, it is, quote, highway robbery, end quote. I'm just going based on what I've read and heard, but this is a company that's coming out of France that's not a local company. And again, not nothing against what's been decided here. Um, however, there are multiple use properties that have been put into place for, with retail and office space around the city that, first of all, to me, they're getting this for highway robbery, number one, but number two, it would, would it, wouldn't it be better served for them to find someplace within, this, within the city areas that, that are currently vacant when, there's, when there is space for them? So, Kelson responded. Well, they need an acre, at least an acre of space, and that that's very difficult to find. Oh, uh, in terms of that, but and they were in, trying, in terms and, of that, but not for office space. They don't need an acre for office space. No, they don't need an acre for office space. But they, it's better to have the office space near where the laydown yard is, of course. Board member Megan Parmenter asked if the rent would bring in any income, or if it would at least cancel out the cost of internet services at the facility. Kelson said the agreement is not going to generate any additional revenue. However, it will offset the internet bill. The board voted to approve the agreement four to one, with Burnham dissenting. Board member Jeff Amon was not present. The next board meeting will be held on September 12th. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements for the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30pm on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. On Monday, August 1st, three prisoners escaped from the Concordia Parish Correctional Facility in Faraday, Louisiana. One prisoner was recaptured the same day in Baton Rouge, and as of Monday, August 29th, the other prisoners have yet to be captured. A guard was arrested and charged with the escape, as it was reported he knowingly confirmed an incorrect head count of a prison dorm, which resulted in a delay of CPCF officials identifying missing inmates. On August 1st, an altercation between prisoners and guards started at the Coxsackie Correctional Facility in New York when guards caught a prisoner trying to take food back to his cell from the mess hall. According to the prison administration, when the encounter escalated and became violent, at least five more prisoners jumped in, leaving one sergeant and six guards injured. The melee was eventually subdued when more guards arrived on the scene. 
Authorities did not immediately give information about whether the prisoners involved were harmed. On Thursday, August 4th, two prisoners attempted to escape Morgan County Jail in Decatur, Alabama. According to reports, the prisoners made a makeshift rope out of bedsheets, blankets, towels, and a water bottle, which they attempted to throw over a 30-foot wall in the recreation yard but were stopped by guards. Both prisoners have been charged with first-degree escape. Perilous has tracked one escape and one escape attempt from this facility since June. According to a letter shared with Perilous Chronicle by an outside support group that is in touch with the protesting detainees, a group of approximately 40 people detained by Immigration and Customs Enforcement at Richwood Correctional Center conducted a peaceful protest by sitting in the yard on Thursday, August 4th, and again on August 23rd. According to the protesters, 10 armed guards responded to their peaceful protest with shields and guns, forcing them to return to their unit. The group says they are now facing repression, such as shackling, retaliatory transfers, and restriction of access to means of communication. The group explained the motivation for their action in a letter, which detailed the lack of communication and consideration of their release requests for up to three months after all required information was provided to ICE, and the lack of any accessibility and language options for those who speak, read, or write Russian, among other concerns. The group wrote, We want to note that each individual, each of these pain points may not be significant, but these problems combined may turn the detention system into torture. That is, people fleeing persecution and torture in their homeland end up facing the same thing, injustice, torture conditions, terrible stress, misunderstanding, and negligence. But all of this is now happening in the country in which they hope to find refuge in the first place. The group reports that there is no Russian English dictionary or access to online or phone translation services to translate asylum applications into English as required under quick deadline to immigration court in removal proceedings. The group also reports that there is no way for Russian speakers to communicate with their assigned ICE deportation officer, who is the only point of contact with regard to these release applications, as no officers speak or read or write Russian, and there is no option for acrylic letters on the tablet's kiosk to which detained individuals are directed if they wish to talk to their deportation officer. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Dr. Ziva Cooper, the director of the UCLA Center for Cannabis and Cannabinoids. Dr. Cooper is also an associate professor at the Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior in the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences and the Department of Anesthesiology. She focuses on preclinical and clinical studies on the behavioral and psychological effects of psychoactive drugs that are of significant public health relevance, including cannabis and opioids. She received her PhD from the University of Michigan in biopsychology in 2007 in the field of preclinical psychopharmacology. Her current research involves understanding the neurobiological 
pharmacological and behavioural variables that can influence both the abuse liability and therapeutic potential of cannabinoids and opioids. She served on the National Academies of Sciences Committee on the Health Effects of Marijuana that recently published a comprehensive consensus report of the health effects of cannabis and cannabinoids. We now turn to correspondent Zero Rose for the second part of the two-part interview with Dr. Ziva Cooper. Might uh, antidepressant be be one of those one of those factors? I believe they're finding out new things about whether some of the previous antidepressants, serotonin mechanism, is not necessarily what's working, and they don't necessarily understand how or why they do work. I think looking at the endocannabinoid system as a whole that you were talking about before, understanding if the endocannabinoid system the chemicals that our body naturally makes that binds to those same receptors that THC binds to, can they be leveraged? Can can drugs that leverage that system be made to address depression? I think that that's, that's going to be something that people are going to be looking at over time. With THC, Delta-9 THC and cannabis use, you know, there seems to be some, some tricky findings where some people use Delta 9 THC and cannabis to help with depression, and it can help in the moment, but over time, symptoms of depression can get worse. We see that in adolescents and young adults, there is a association between depression and cannabis use. We don't know if cannabis use is causing depression or if people who have depression are using cannabis to help with, with depression. So we don't know the direction of this association yet. but. I expect that probably in the future, there will be studies that will, will be looking at these you know, THC chemicals and potentially its effects on depression. Yeah, and getting down into the specifics of the level of dosage, whether you can change it in any direction by going up or down, it seems that there's kind of new factors being brought in since cannabis has been made so potent right. that didn't necessarily exist before you know, with the wonders of botany and improving methods that they may be kind of causing uh, unintended consequences. The synthetic cannabinoids, is it clear about uh, some of their uh, downsides? They've been made illegal and there's a lot of stories about problems that people have had from it, including possibly even uh, strange deaths and things. Uh, do you understand what what's going on with the synthetic cannabinoids? And uh, maybe just because there's something going, you know, being produced that's not necessarily closely regulated, or if there is something about the actual process of how they're produced. So this is a good question. And it goes back to when we first started seeing these cannabis-like products coming to the market as early as 2008 in Europe, and then in 2012 in the United States where these products called K2, Spice, Scooby Snacks were being sold. And they were plant material, essentially, but the plant material was adulterated with, or there were chemicals that were sprayed on this plant material. And those chemicals, as you say, they were synthetic cannabinoids, meaning that they were totally derived in the laboratory, but they were cannabinoids in that they act 
very similarly or places in the brain and the body that Delta 9 THC acts at as well. The difference though with these products and with these chemicals is that a lot of these chemicals acted in different ways at this receptor. So some of these chemicals would turn this receptor on all the way, where Delta 9 THC turns the receptor on only half of the way. And so there were adverse effects that people were reporting, severe adverse effects that people were reporting when they were using these types of synthetic cannabinoid products. Another issue with these synthetic cannabinoid products is that people didn't know what type of chemicals were they were going to get when they got one bag of spice versus another bag of spice. And also the concentration of these chemicals varied within each pack, right? So you could smoke the first half of one of these packs and not feel anything, but all the chemicals might've settled down to the bottom. And so when you smoke the bottom part, you might expect that you wouldn't feel anything because you already smoked half of it and you didn't feel that much of an effect. But all of a sudden you get all of these chemicals exposed to all of these chemicals that weren't present in that first half of the pack. And so you mentioned this idea of regulation. So these products were not regulated. They were comprised of many different chemicals and compounds that might act similarly to THC, but might have a stronger effect on that receptor or might last a lot longer than THC. And you had people not really knowing what the effects were and also not understanding that we didn't know what the effects were. And so maybe people thought they were safe because they were being sold in gas stations or smoke shops. We learned a lot from that era. And as you say, a lot of those compounds were banned or now schedule one, and we've seen decreased popularity of them. And in fact, there was an article that showed that in states with medical cannabis and non-medical cannabis laws, there's been a reduction in the use of those compounds. So, you know, when we talk about Delta-8 THC and some of these other compounds that we're going to see that are being synthesized from the cannabis plant, like Delta-10 THC, are we going to see something similar that we saw with these synthetic cannabinoids, K2, Spice, Scooby Snacks? I think that based off of Delta-8 THC and what we know, where it's very similar to Delta-9 THC, I would not expect those types of adverse effects. However, it's important to remember that in these Delta-8 THC products, there might be other chemicals in there that might have more adverse effects than, let's say, what we would think Delta-8 THC would have. And so there are certain states that I think are seeing calls to poison control or calls to the emergency room where people have used these Delta-8 THC products and are having significant adverse reactions. Are those adverse reactions due to Delta-8 THC in those products? Or is it that there might be other chemicals in those products that are producing those severe adverse effects? And at this point, I think it's a little bit too early to say. In terms of uh, CBD and the other you know, non-psychoactive or considered not as psychoactive components, is uh, anti-inflammatory qualities, is that part of their therapeutic use for pain? And are there any others that are maybe not as well known? It might be. Yeah. So one of the hypothesized ways that CBD might be helpful for pain or for a variety of health indications might be that it is proposed to have anti-inflammatory effects. That hasn't necessarily been fully fleshed out yet in human studies, but in animal studies, it looks like CBD can have anti-inflammatory effects and that might help for you know therapeutic effects. 
THC might also have uh, anti-inflammatory effects as well. So I think that when we talk about cannabinoids, a lot of them, a lot of them may have this anti-inflammatory component to it that might be helpful for a lot of different health indications. And do you think that isolating these elements might take away some of the known effects that the cluster of chemicals may have a synergetic kind of suite of effects that when you isolate the different elements, you're kind of creating an entirely new situation? So at this point in time, based off of like the rigorous clinical trials that have been done, um, looking at the therapeutic effects of the chemicals in the cannabis plant, for the most part, they've been isolated. So we've looked at isolated THC, Delta 9 THC, isolated CBD, maybe the two together. But at this point in time, there haven't been rigorous studies. So where you're comparing that test medication to a placebo, where you've looked at all these components together and figured out if you use all the components in the cannabis plant, will you get a better therapeutic effect? It's an interesting hypothesis. And people are working on this hypothesis and testing this out right now. We're doing this in our lab right now, actually, where we're looking at some of these individual components and their effects by themselves and then together to see if you can get improved therapeutic effects, reduced negative effects. But at this point in time, you know, based off of the scientific evidence, we can't say that that is a true effect at this point in time. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. 